We are going to be inundated with data like never before. We have to monitor this data and make it relevant or clinically meaningful. Otherwise, it's just data. It's garbage in, garbage out. And so there are societal guidelines on this in terms of what atrial fibrillation is standardization-wise. 30 seconds of an irregularly irregular heart rhythm that does not have any ability to maintain a normal, what we call sinus beat, which is what the right atrium is supposed to do. That's our pacemaker of our heart. If we don't see any normal rhythm in 30 seconds and it's irregularly irregular, uh, that is in definition by itself atrial fibrillation. and welcome to Peak Health with Dr. Gupta. This show is for those who want to optimize their health and maximize their genetic potential. If you like our show and want to learn more, please visit our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below. Here you can gain access to a 10-day body reset module, which teaches you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and guides you on how to drop blood glucose, blood pressure, body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in 10 days. Also, a body optimization module, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. Finally, there's a link to get one-on-one consulting with me. Have you ever had palpitations or irregular heartbeats and not sure what that means or where to turn? Do you have atrial fibrillation and want to learn how to decrease burden of this condition? To answer these questions and more, I'd like to introduce a good friend of mine, Dr. Shrag Samsara. Shrag is an electrophysiologist and board-certified in clinical electrophysiology and cardiovascular medicine and currently works for Virginia Heart. Shrag and I have known each other for a number of years and are also part of a mastermind group where we discuss medicine, current events, and other entertaining topics. If you haven't heard of a mastermind before, please look it up. It's a great way to use everyone's collective intelligence for a higher purpose and often results in wonderful things such as this podcast. Welcome, Shrag. Thanks, Ravi. Thanks for having me on board. This is fantastic. Excellent. Happy to have you. And maybe let's start with something very simple. Uh, Maybe you can describe what palpitations are and if someone should be worried if they feel them. Right, so that's a great question and a a good segue into some of the things you already discussed. Palpitations are essentially the awareness of someone's or one's heartbeat. So you and I could sit here and have conversations like this uh, and feel an awareness of our heartbeat. It doesn't have to be an abnormal awareness. It is just an an awareness, an alert to your mind saying, hey, something may be awry. Uh, maybe it could be a skipped heartbeat. There could be a slowing of the heart rate. There could be a sudden acceleration of the heart rate. And all of these are considered palpitations. Now, a palpitation can also be a normal heart rhythm. Uh, oftentimes, patients call us and say, hey, I feel like my heart's beating. And, uh, and we wonder, well, what, what's bringing it on? They're doing nothing. They're not exercising. They're not active. But they feel their heart rate. And that What that means is they're at rest. They're really just basically relaxing, but they are uh, laying sometimes on their left side, for example, and just laying on their left side reverberates the action of the heartbeat against the rib cage. And that itself is a palpitation. So palpitations have unfortunately been misclassified as an abnormality, but it's actually just a normal awareness of one's uh, heart beating. But within that classification, there are abnormalities also that can arise. Excellent. Uh, that's, a, that's a great definition. And, and I imagine you can feel palpitations that are related to non-cardiac reasons as well, correct? Absolutely. So, you know, the chest cavity is filled with all kinds of things. We have the esophagus or the food pipe, the windpipe or the trachea. Uh, the lung cavity is there too. We talked about the bony rib cage. 
And, you know, really any of these things that um, uh, can potentially uh, cause problems can lead to things like a, a, a feeling of a heartbeat abnormality. I've had patients tell me when they swallow, you know, just large quantities of food or drink very quickly, they feel a palpitation. And what's happening there is, again, that large uh, uh, amount of ingestion in the GI system kind of uh, unfortunately enhances the GI system a bit quicker than it should. And that shock to the system uh, feels like the heart's beating harder and working harder. But in essence, it's just doing its job. Excellent. And um, we all have wearables nowadays, uh, Apple Watches and such. What are your thoughts on that and experience palpitations and looking at that? Yeah, that's a great question. And then obviously something that we are now just seeing the beginnings of just etching the surface of what wearables can do for us. Um, so for example, the Apple Watch or uh, Fitbit now can do this as well, uh, along with something called a Cardia mobile app. And what these wearables do is they basically assess the uh, pulse uh, rate and the rhythm of your heart based on uh, a wearable on your wrist or sometimes even on the uh, index finger. And what it's doing is basically translating that pulse beat into an actual rhythm. And so there's algorithms to do that. And oftentimes these algorithms uh, can certainly uh, make one aware of what their actual heart rhythm is, especially if they're having abnormalities. Uh, so I have patients that I see for atrial fibrillation and they oftentimes aren't sure if this is atrial fibrillation or even something like anxiety or stress can feel like atrial fibrillation. And this gives them that chance of awareness of what their heart rhythm really is. It actually can help rule in or rule out heart disease. Um, and I'll give you an example there. So uh, a young female saw me in the office not too long ago, uh, convinced that she had a heart rhythm abnormality. She's also undergoing a lot of stress uh, at work and at school. She's uh, uh, getting a graduate degree and spending long times at, at, at home studying and then working a full day job. And she's convinced that she has an abnormal heart rhythm disorder. So she brought in her Apple Watch tracings and she says, well, the Apple Watch must not be working because every single tracing she's showing me when she's actually having an abnormality shows normal rhythm. And so what I explained to her is that even having a palpitation, for example, as we just discussed, can be normal because this awareness that something is wrong could potentially feel like your heart is abnormal. But the nice thing about these wearables is that they can, again, rule out disease in healthy people. Uh, folks think that they actually have a heart rhythm disorder. Most commonly, uh, you know, things could potentially just be normal rhythm. But there are patients that we have ruled in with disease for the very first time as well. As a matter of fact, the technology is so good, especially in the Apple Watch, that, that folks that are wearing it all day long, it alerts you if your heart rate is too fast or beating irregularly, even for folks that don't even know about it. And they come in with that information saying, you know, my, my Apple Watch is telling me something is wrong and I actually feel okay. When in fact, it is actually making a correct diagnosis, a new diagnosis of a heart rhythm disorder, such as, uh, for example, atrial fibrillation. So there's a lot more coming in the pipeline regarding this. And this is just the beginnings of technology and how it will be utilized is not really clear yet, but it certainly can help consumers and, and patients looking for medical attention regarding their, their syndromes to seek attention sooner versus later. That's great. And that's, that's a relatively low cost solution for someone um, if they feel palpitations or are concerned about it, they can use their wearable and determine if it is indeed one or not. Um, I imagine they're not, you know, obviously they're not as sensitive as going to the doctor getting a standard 12 lead EKG, but at least it's decent information. The technology is proving such that as time goes on, it gets more and more sensitive. So certainly something listeners should be thinking about. They feel palpitations um, on a regular basis and want to check it out on their own. But that brings us to the next question is, when should an individual see a physician 
um, if they feel palpitations. Right. And so this is uh, the conundrum of, you know, we see patients, unfortunately, sometimes too late in the stage of their disease where they've had symptoms for a while and they really didn't want to seek medical attention because it wasn't really bothering them, but the disease became more serious as time went on. And the alternative is, of course, patients, you know, tend to see us sometimes even too soon. You know, they actually don't have an abnormality, uh, but they have symptoms that may potentially uh, require workup. and That actually may uncover an abnormality. And so the real time, the, the perfect time is sort of that in-between area when symptoms are interfering with quality of life. When you have a change in your quality of life and it's not a, and your, your day-to-day routine is unfortunately modded uh, by this type of symptom, whether it's a palpitation or a skipped heartbeat or racing heart rate, then you can't get through your day because you're thinking about how your heart is affecting you. That is exactly the time to come in and see a, a physician because if it's interfering with your quality of life, there's probably something much more uh, concerning going on deeper inside. And so uh, that to me is the most common you know, uh, challenge for patients to understand, but helping them understand that you know, it's effect on how you feel on a day-to-day basis and your ability to maintain uh, normal activities of daily living, if that is being influenced by this and coming in to see your doctor makes good sense. Excellent. Okay. So interference of, with quality of life or, I mean, happening often enough so that you, it just, it's, it's a concern to you. These are, these are all good reasons to see your primary physician, primary care physician, um, who may refer you to somebody like Shirag if they need to. Now let's, let's switch gears a bit and talk about, um, atrial fibrillation, which is the most common arrhythmia and you see very often. So maybe you can start with telling us what is atrial fibrillation and how common it is. Right. That's an important topic. And unfortunately, we're seeing much more of this today than we ever have before. It's become much more of an epidemic. Atrial fibrillation is the most common heart rhythm disorder in humans. And what it is, is basically an abnormality of a heartbeat that originates usually in the left atrium. So we have four cardiac chambers, the left atrium, which is the upper left-hand corner of your chest, is beating, unfortunately, in a very uh, unfavorable pattern. And it's extremely irregular. There are two things that occur when the heart beats very irregularly. One, it affects your quality of life. Now, one uh, aspect of this is just that when you have an irregular heartbeat, the cardiac output or amount of blood flow exiting your heart is reduced. It's diminished. Um, And so that affects how you feel. It reduces your energy level. It it makes you more fatigued. You have more shortness of breath with activity. And so that may be one manifestation of atrial fibrillation. Unfortunately, Ravi, the other manifestation that we unfortunately see way too often, it seems like still, is stroke. And this is the one that's deadly. And so on one end, we have quality of life problems, but the other end, we have a morbidity or mortality problem, and atrial fibrillation can lead to a stroke. And what happens there? Well, what happens when the atrium is not contracting, and it's literally fibrillating, it's like you know contracting like jelly is contracting, essentially, uh, it loses its muscularity, its ability to have a full cardiac contractility. And that irregularity in rhythm or that lack of uh, cardiac contractility leads to what we call stasis or lack of blood flow in and out of the atrium. And that lack of blood flow leads to coagulation and blood starts coagulating in an area called the left atrial appendage. And once blood coagulates there, it forms something called a clot or a thrombus. Now, when the patient goes back into normal rhythm or sometimes when they maintain AFib for much longer periods of time, Uh, It could potentially then go from the left atrium to the ventricle and then to the brain uh, through the aorta or other parts of the body and called, uh, it's called an embolism. 
And a stroke is one form of an embolism. And this, unfortunately, is deadly. This can cause, obviously, uh, significant morbidity, but also mortality. And so this is why we want to uh, be ahead of the curve here. If we see patients with atrial fibrillation sooner versus later, it's helpful because we can help prevent that from happening. Excellent. Um, thank you for that. And that's you know, a reason why all of the listeners here should be aware of this condition um, because it is not a benign condition. It's not, and you mentioned that, you know, it could cause a feeling of um, unwell, uh, being unwell and uh, loss of energy because of the decrease in cardiac output. And just, just um, a quick aside for listeners, you know, there are four chambers, the atria contracts and then the ventricles contract and they all help in movement of blood into your body. And if one of them, if the atria in this, in this instance is not contracting well, then you're not getting that, that kick of it atrium into the ventricle. And that's what causes that you know, lack of loss of or decrease of blood flow, feeling unwell. Um, but it can also, as Shrag mentioned, cause a stroke. So obviously, you know, you want to avoid this at all costs. Um, so let's deep uh, dive into this a bit further. What causes atrial fibrillation? What are some of the right. Yeah, you know, so interesting, Ravi, we uh, first thought this was a disease of older people, but it turns out younger people more so today than ever before are inflicted by atrial fibrillation. And the reason is the risk factors and the things that can cause us are much more prevalent in today's society. And those things include obesity, hypertension, smoking, alcohol use, sedentary lifestyle, uh, things such as uh, alcohol-affected uh, heart disease as well. Sleep apnea is becoming much more prevalent because of our obesity epidemic. And even things like hypertension or blockages in the heart arteries, uh, such as coronary disease, are all common causes. We are seeing much more of all of those things in today's society, unfortunately, as we become much more sedentary, it seems, and the obesity epidemic continues to climb. This continues to climb parallel with it as well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. We were talking prior to recording the podcast. You mentioned that atrial fibrillation is a lifestyle disease, um, and for all the reasons that you just mentioned, you know, increasing you know, obesity or coronary artery disease that's can be preventable, um, uh, al- alcohol use, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, you can take changes or take precautions and prevent this condition, but also along with that, um, you can prevent other conditions that are associated with those risk factors. So, you know, thinking about these things, this is the the fundamental foundation of functional medicine itself. Those of you who've been listening to this podcast to understand that, you know, like really focus on root cause of disease and all the things that uh, Shrog mentioned are based on root causes of various types of disease and um, AFib is one of them. Um, excellent. So, um, and you know, other, I think you may, you mentioned thyroid issues as well, and infections can, can cause it as well. Um, uh, now let's move on to diagnosis. Um, we talked about this a bit, but what's, what's the, what's the gold standard to diagnose atrial fibrillation? Right. A rhythm strip, an EKG or a rhythm strip that shows an abnormal heart rhythm disorder is the gold standard. You know, again, oftentimes patients will come in feeling like they have atrial fibrillation and, you know, we can put a monitor on them, uh, which is a, a monitor they wear. There's patch technology. Now they just put a patch on their chest and records their heartbeats for over 24 hours or up to two weeks. Uh, we talked about wearable technology as well that can now record your heart rhythm or the simple 12 lead electrocardiogram where they get in the uh, doctor's office can, can record this. And the point is, is that the recording has to be done at the time of the patient's event. 
So again, oftentimes patients come into the office, they are, are fairly certain they have an arrhythmia, but they get an EKG and they're in normal rhythm. And so in these cases, again, we put a monitor on them that they can go home with, or we ask them to purchase one of these wearable technology monitors, and then they return the recordings back to us. And we can tell them, you know, at the time of their symptoms, uh, what their actual rhythm is matters because that's what we want to treat. Again, if they have an arrhythmia, uh, such as atrial fibrillation, there's several others, and that's when the process of discussions regarding therapies start uh, happening. This patch technology that you mentioned, um, is that something that you get in your in the physician's office or is that something you can purchase outside? Yeah, Ravi, this is new technology. This is something that's come out about maybe two or three years ago. Uh, we used to actually have monitors, as you remember, Ravi, back in the day where you'd have to wear them. They're bulky. They have uh, uh, leads that, you know, that are recording with wires and patients couldn't really mobilize very much with this. Nowadays, these patches are very discreet. They're very small. They're literally a patch. You just take the adhesive off. You put shit on your upper, left upper chest and you can go for a run. You can go for a swim. You can uh, uh, keep it on for up to a week. And once that week is up, you can put another patch on up to four weeks. Um, and the point here is, is that we don't want to interfere with the patient's lifestyle. We want them to go on doing the things that they are doing, but we want to be able to record something that may happen unbeknownst to them at times. Uh, and then they also have the ability to dial in symptoms. And so not only do they get a patch, you also get a, a small smartphone that comes with this and they can dial in symptoms. So now I can have a time and date stamp and then a symptom in between. So we can really correlate their symptoms with what their activity may have been uh, at the time as well. So we can try to avoid some of the triggers that potentially can cause some of these arrhythmias as well. That's really interesting. And, and to those of you who aren't using the patch, but just using a wearable, you can also obviously do that yourself. Just document the symptoms you have, time, stamp it, so you can send, you can uh, show that to your physician as well. Um, excellent. So uh, we we now know how it's diagnosed. Uh, uh, another question regarding diagnosis: What if there's? What if you just see two seconds, three seconds of AFib? You know, just a very small paroxysm. Paroxysm. Um, is that is that anything concerning? Um, how long does it have to be to be a concerning arrhythmia? That's a great question. You know, this comes up very, very commonly as people are wearing more and more of these patches or, or having uh, ability to use wearable technology. And this has become the conundrum of medicine right now, Ravi. As we get wearable technology, as you can imagine, we are going to be inundated with data like never before. We have to monitor this data and make it relevant or clinically meaningful. Otherwise, it's just data. It's garbage in, garbage out. And so there are societal guidelines on this in terms of what atrial fibrillation is standardization-wise. 30 seconds of an irregularly irregular heart rhythm that does not have any ability to maintain a normal, what we call sinus beat, which is what the right atrium is supposed to do. That's our pacemaker of our heart. If we don't see any normal rhythm in 30 seconds and it's irregularly irregular, uh, that is in definition by itself atrial fibrillation. Once we meet that criteria, now we look at how long they've been in atrial fibrillation for and the amount of time they're in AFib matters. And studies show if you're in AFib for up to uh, at least four to five hours, your risk of stroke starts increasing. It doesn't incur in the first 30 seconds, but it takes some time for the blood to coagulate. And so in about four and a half to five hours, is when we start worrying about it. So if patients have AFib going on for that long, uh, now we start concerning ourselves about, well, do they need to be on a blood thinner? Do they meet requirements for a blood thinner? And do we need to medically manage this differently as well? So you're saying 30 seconds of atrial fibrillation is the definition, but it's not really clinically concerning for stroke unless it's a four-hour window. Right, exactly. At least four to five, five and a half hours is sort of the cutoff. 
And again, that goes back to risk factors for stroke as well. There are some well-known, well-defined risk factors, including age over 65. If you're over age 75, you actually double that risk factor. Coronary disease, heart failure, history of diabetes, a history of a previous stroke. Women tend to have a higher risk of stroke than men do. Uh, and so these are our more common, uh, well-defined risk factors. And if, if patients tend to have more than two of these, of any of these risk factors we discussed, uh, the risk of stroke now is, is significant and we need to consider something called anticoagulation or blood thinners uh, for those particular patients that reduce the risk of stroke. Okay. And what we'll do is we'll just briefly talk about treatment. There's, we could probably spend a lot, uh, many, many hours talking about different types of treatment, but uh, maybe just if you can just go through them quickly. And then what we're going to really focus on is prevention um, and focusing on the root cause of disease and how can, and what people with atrial fibrillation um, can do to decrease the, the burden of this condition on themselves. So um, let's start with treatment. Yeah, very basic. Uh, treatment is broken down into two parts. Um, uh, and you can add the third part is anticoagulation that we already talked about, blood thinners. Uh, but the two parts are rate versus rhythm control. So oftentimes patients come in and they're in atrial fibrillation. They don't know it. They feel fine. Um, we don't have to be overly aggressive there. We can just make sure that their heart rate is well controlled. And what that means is they have to have resting heart rates less than 110 beats per minute. So at rest, less than 110 beats per minute is important. And that prevents risks of atrial fibrillation from causing things such as shortness of breath and you know, fatigue and difficulty with, with exertion. Uh, the second aspect of this, that's rate control. The second aspect of this is rhythm control. Rhythm control means patients are highly symptomatic in atrial fibrillation. They can't tolerate being in atrial fibrillation. And now we have to get them back in normal rhythm. And the two ways to do that are either with drug therapy or something called a cardioversion. We have medicines, drugs that are called antiarrhythmic drugs. They're quite powerful that can either convert the patient back to normal rhythm or once they are in normal rhythm, we can start the drug and that maintains normal rhythm. And the other aspect of this is called a cardioversion. And a cardioversion is where a patient who is in atrial fibrillation for prolonged periods of time would come into the hospital fasting and under general anesthesia, we can actually provide electrical energy to their chest to convert them back to normal rhythm. And that electrical energy to their chest converts them from atrial fibrillation to normal sinus rhythm. And so those are the more common ways we treat atrial fibrillation from a rhythm control point of view. And lastly, ablation technology has been probably the more uh, commonly used therapy that we use because the treatment is very good. Success rates are about 70 or 80%, and a catheter or a small wire is introduced from the leg into your heart. And we zap the tissue that's causing atrial fibrillation in the left atrium, and that really stuns the heart from preventing further atrial fibrillation from even forming in the first place. Excellent. Um, just, just an aside, sort of, Fun question for you. Um, you know, in the movies, you see people pounding on another person's chest to convert them from, you know, a, a arrhythmia to normal size rhythm. Can you actually do that? Can, is that possible? It is actually. So, but not for atrial fibrillation, it turns out, but it is for ventricular um, arrhythmia. So you've probably heard of or seen stories of uh, kids in a, and for example, uh, we have, we both have kids around the same age. Our kids play soccer and uh, baseball is another one where they get uh, hit to the chest from the ball, okay? And the, we've seen these stories in the news where the kids collapse to the ground and parents are not coming in. They're, you know, they're pounding the chest and the patient wakes up or the kid wakes up right away. This is called commotio cordis. And it's like actually a very common, unfortunate scenario where right at the right moment, the very particular time of the heart's in its relaxation phase, if an object or projectile hits the chest, the patient can go into cardiac arrest. 
And just by re-thumping the chest again, uh, really uh, a good solid whack of the chest one time may potentially convert the patient back to normal rhythm. But it's not common. It's not easy to do uh, and, and helps more so in younger people rather than older people. The bigger you are, the more energy you need uh, to convert from a pound or a fist in the chest to, to an electrical shock that would it would essentially would have to become. And so, yes, it can be done. It is helpful. It is necessary. And it's actually part of our resuscitation protocol as well. So we do consider this as a, a way to resuscitate patients that come in with cardiac arrest as well. Okay, excellent. So an atrial fibrillation, somebody has atrial fibrillation, um, they should not pound on their chest to try to convert themselves is, is the bottom line. Right. Yeah, it does not work in the atrium, only works in larger tissues such as the ventricle. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, all right. So now focusing on root cause of disease prevention, um, because atrial fibrillation is a lifestyle condition, as you mentioned. So what can someone do um, if they have AFib or maybe they have paroxysms of AFib or they just want to prevent AFib? What, what are some of the steps they can take? Yeah, exactly. And this is where I spend a lot of my time with patients these days, it seems like, because there's so much um, happening to people that we don't, unfortunately, have time to talk about or see them when we see them in the office. And these are things that, unfortunately, are more lifestyle-driven that affect how they behave on a day-to-day basis, uh, what they do to themselves. And a lot of it stems from two important things. One is sedentary lifestyle and two, obesity that stems from that. And when you see patients that have a sedentary lifestyle or they have had now gained weight, unfortunately, their risk factors for atrial fibrillation start increasing. The most common cause for that is just sheer increase in body surface area. When you have a larger atrium, because your body surface area is increased, there is more tissue that can fibrillate. And so this is sort of a, um, a situation where you just have a lot more tissue available that could potentially become much more unstable or unhealthy over time. Now, is that uh, but as I said- the surface area increasing because of hypertension or is it because right. of the obese themselves? It could be hypertension. It could be sedentary lifestyle. It could be due to obesity. It could be due to valvular heart disease. Um, all of these things can increase the left atrial size. And so when those things happen, the atrium stretches. This leads to more fibrillation occurring and it becomes a vicious cycle. So uh, more, uh, we have actually patients then, and this has been well studied now in, in the Framingham uh, patient population, which was in Minnesota that looked at a large cohort of patients, followed them for almost 70 years. The larger you are, the more risk there is for atrial fibrillation. And that's, again, just going back to all the things we just talked about. So I, I have patients that are uh, basketball players and actually have atrial fibrillation. We can't figure out why, except that they're just very tall. And they're just bigger people. They just have larger hearts. And so there's a higher chance the, the taller you are, the more body surface area you have, the, the higher the risk of, of having AFib is another risk factor as well. But some of the other you know more common things, Ravi, that we, again, need to spend more time with other patients and we don't discuss. And the one that is really attributable to today, especially the next month, is alcohol. Now, there's you know an entity called holiday heart syndrome um, that I think is important just to talk about real quick. So during the holidays, uh, patients tend to, for the first time, maybe in several months or even a year or so, tend to increase their alcohol intake. And they're not used to this. Uh, and so this alcohol uh, intake increases the propensity for atrial fibrillation. And so alcohol is a known risk factor for AFib for a, a variety of reasons. It does stimulate the heart, it increases your heart rate, but unfortunately, on a more molecular level, it increases the propensity of atrial fibrillation. There was a study done um, not too long ago, published in 2020, that looked at this in the New England Journal of Medicine. They took a group of patients, um, 140 patients in one cohort, who continue drinking alcohol. This is an, uh, a European trial. 
And they took another cohort and told them to stop drinking alcohol. And they watched them for over a period of a year. The ones that continued drinking for more than 10 drinks a week. Okay, so this is a normal you know, thing to do for you know, folks in Europe. They have one or two drinks every night at dinner. Um, it could even be wine. But they had a higher chance of going into atrial fibrillation than those that actually stopped drinking altogether when we uh, matched them for both age and, and sex as well. So you can cut down your risk for atrial fibrillation sometimes just by cutting out the amount of alcohol you're consuming. But then other things that we have to also discuss are diabetes, uh, pre-diabetes actually. So before patients become diabetic, if your hemoglobin A1C is 5.7, your risk factor for atrial fibrillation can increase by one and a half uh, times compared to what the normal cohort would be. And so modulating or regulating blood sugar levels also becomes extremely important. And the one factor that it is a silent disease, really two of them, but one I really want to touch on is sleep apnea. You know, Ravi, this is a common problem. It's uh, an epidemic also in America and across the world. Because of obesity, uh, folks with a neck size greater than 16 centimeters uh, tend to have a higher prevalence of sleep apnea. And sleep apnea is just basically snoring to the point where oxygen levels become so low, the brain actually stops the respiratory system from continuing. And that's called apnea. And that also increases the prevalence of atrial arrhythmias. And it's just a sheer stress on the heart. It's a low oxygen level that leads to unfortunate untoward effects on the, on the body and the heart for that matter. And atrial fibrillation, unfortunately, is one of those. And so all of these things we've discussed, hyperthyroidism, uh, meaning which is a very low level of, 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 of thyroid in your body, almost undetectable uh, thyroid stimulating hormone levels um, are also other common causes are all things that could be potentially treated, uh, assessed, screened for, and, and we can therefore prevent this from even happening in the first place. Yeah, these are, these are extremely important points. The alcohol situation, people are going to drink, and you know, as physicians, we understand that. We're not saying don't drink at all, but it's just as you drink more and more, your risk increases for atrial fibrillation. Um, what do you tell your if patients are like, look, I want to drink, I'm not going to stop. What do you... What do you um, how do you counsel your patients? You know, this is a challenging question because we've been telling patients all along, you know, having a drink a night, at least a glass of red wine, for example, Ruby, is very good for coronary disease protection, right? So you can have plaque stabilization in the coronary arteries, and that's actually been shown. So red wine, helpful. Unfortunately, everything else outside of that, not helpful, but even red wine or any alcohol for that matter of any type, if you have atrial fibrillation, is a problem. So I don't tell patients not to drink. I think that's not you know uh, helpful and it's not really uh, meaningful to a patient. What is meaningful though is that the amount of alcohol you are consuming should be cut down. And so if a patient comes in and says, "Listen, I have you know one or two drinks a night," I tell everybody cut everything in half at least to start. If it's one or two drinks, make it just one drink a night. If it's one drink a night, cut it down to a half a drink. If you only drink on the weekends, you know try to drink only one out of those two days. Don't drink on both days. Cutting things in half is a good place to start. And I think if you can modify your ability to uh, you know, reduce that as your triggers for atrial fibrillation, uh, that's a, the, the first dot. You know, if you can do that, great. You're at least ahead of the curve. And then once you do that, then it just becomes much more nuanced in the sense that if you can reduce your intake, knowing that you're going to reduce your atrial fibrillation, uh, I think patients tend to you know, buy into this more. It's like, hey, listen, I had two weeks now in a row. I haven't had AFib once I cut down my alcohol intake. And then it just becomes much more meaningful to them. I've had many, many, many patients cut out alcohol altogether on their own without me even pushing them to do so because they can see the relevance uh, already. I mean, it's very poignant. And so this is something I think patients have to take to heart literally and understand that there is meaningful improvement 
and their outcomes, if they do follow you know, our recommendations, they tend to do much better. Excellent. So as far as primary prevention goes, you know, obviously, if you don't have this atrial fibrillation as a condition and otherwise you're doing fine, you know, drinking uh, a glass is, is actually a glass of red wine, as uh, Shark mentioned, is recommended. But if you have atrial fibrillation, I mean, these, are certain, these certainly are things that you should consider avoiding. Um, uh, let, let's see, you mentioned alcohol, you mentioned, uh, structural sleep apnea. Uh, we actually had a great podcast with our, our, um, uh, friend, uh, Ali Maxidi. He spoke about sleep apnea and went over details. So if you guys have any questions about, uh, or, or, uh, want to learn more about sleep apnea, listen to that podcast, um, obesity, insulin resistance, sedentary lifestyle. Uh, I've got a great, uh, 10 day body reset protocol. Take a look at that, that discusses all of those types of things um, and how you can get on a proper diet. And you don't have to feel hungry all the time and you can still lose weight because very often people are just eating very improperly. They really know what's, what the correct foods are to eat and then they, uh, they're gaining weight and they don't know why. Hyperthyroidism, this is an, this, you know, it, very often an autoimmune related condition and you can actually, there's functional medicine techniques to um, decrease the burden of this autoimmune condition in your body. And, and we'll discuss that more in detail later, but that's something to consider. You know, if you, you definitely should see a, your physician about that, but, um, if you want to practice some lifestyle dietary supplement regimens to help with this, you can do that. I think another big one is stress reduction. Um, you know, it's very common in, um, in today's, uh, society, um, in general, people feel a lot of stress. So there's many stress mitigation techniques, um, and we've discussed this on the podcast as well. So you can listen to some of these. Meditation um, is one of the big ones that we, you know, always discuss. There's many others, um, and uh, you know, a lot of the risk factors of coronary artery disease relate to atrial fibrillation, as, as uh, Shrag mentioned. Shrag, have you seen people with active atrial fibrillation? You, you mentioned this before, but maybe you can just tell us a case of of somebody you've seen with active AFib pretty significant disease, pursue these lifestyle changes and it just, you know, they improved. Have you, have you witnessed this and seen this? Absolutely. I, I there's a really great uh, case study of this. I saw maybe about uh, just a year and a half ago. I actually tell a lot of my patients this case study because it, it was so meaningful. Uh, this is a, um, uh, patient who was, he was actually a lawyer. He's, he's an attorney, but he teaches, at George Mason University, uh, locally here in Fairfax, Virginia. And he came to see me because of, you know, overwhelming fatigue. And he went to his primary care doctor's office and uh, was found to be in the onset atrial fibrillation. Now, this guy's an attorney. He's very smart, um, dedicated to his profession, but also to his students. And uh, he, over the years, as I took his history, found out that he gained almost about 100 pounds of weight in a period of about, um, I think, 18 months, 19 months, something like that. I mean, an astronomical amount of weight gain. For a variety of reasons, he was um, unfortunately working long hours with teaching. He had uh, court cases as well. He was doing, and you know, typical you know lifestyle of a professor. Unfortunately, you know, just not eating well and, and not taking good care of himself. Nuanced atrial fibrillation, but he also had nuanced other things: nuanced sleep apnea, nuanced obesity, nuanced diabetes, nuanced hypertension. Okay, so he has four diseases, right? Just by being sedentary and not eating well, and so AFib is the reason I'm seeing him. So in this span of about maybe 30 minutes, him and I had a long talk about 
you know, me becoming now is really his primary care doctor. I'm seeing him from a rhythm point of view. We spent no time talking about atrial fibrillation. We spent all the time talking about weight reduction. And I put him on a weight loss program and he ended up losing something in the order of about 70 or 80 pounds on this program over a period of six months. All right. So just intense program went all out and lost all this weight. And he came off of his, he called me because he was getting lightheaded and dizzy. His blood pressures were really low. So I ended up stopping his blood pressure pills. We took him off his cholesterol medication. Um, we had to uh, cut back on his diabetes medicines, his metformin that he was on because his blood sugar was going too low. And in the process of all of that, again, we didn't discuss atrial fibrillation once through any of these visits with him, but his AFib stopped. And this is really important because this is, again, the testament to AFib becoming, unfortunately, a lifestyle disease. If we fix the underlying triggers and risk factors and take better care of ourselves, uh, even from a functional medicine point of view, Robbie, I mean, we can impact patients' lives in so many ways. So many diseases uh, potentially can be uh, literally cured. I mean, we don't talk about cure, Robbie, very much in medicine, right? This is a cure, right? This is a cure. And a patient did it himself. That's amazing. That's a wonderful story. I appreciate you sharing that with all of us. Um, out of curiosity, this patient, you know, as their AFib stopped, when when did you stop anticoagulation? When when did yeah, you, you know, so he didn't really require anticoagulation, but I did anticoagulate him, thinking we were going to cardiovert him or shock him back to normal rhythm, which we ended up not doing. And so once he showed me the dedicated uh, signs of weight loss, and we were able to stop his blood pressure pills and his cholesterol pills and his diabetes medicines. That's when I stopped his blood thinners as well. I didn't want to risk him having a bleeding complication for no reason. He only required the anticoagulation because he was having high blood pressure and diabetes at the same time, which I said before are two risk factors for stroke. Now that those two diseases are gone, this guy was only 57 years old. He had no other reasons to be on a blood thinner. So again, we literally eradicated several diseases just with weight loss in this one simple situation. It was great. Excellent. I love that story. That's, that's, a, that's a great way to end this podcast. Um, really appreciate you, uh, Shrug, sharing all this information. Super helpful and, and really is going to help our base of listeners understand this disease, understand palpitations, atrial fibrillation. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how, how could they do that? I'm at Virginia Hearts and we have 11 offices across Northern Virginia. I, I go to a few of those. Um, and happy to see any of your patients that may have heart rhythm disorders to get them back on track. They can just Google us. Uh, I'm available and uh, happy to see them if necessary. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please make sure to hit the subscribe and the like button and leave a comment about what you'd like to see on our future episodes. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not substitute for professional care, nor does it constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for medical care, please seek a qualified doctor or medical professional. For more information, or if you'd like to check out our programs, please visit our website, peakwellnesshealth.com. That's peakwellnesshealth.com.